Welcome to Novak Now. I am Jake Novak. You can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY, also on Facebook, Jake Novak. And today we're going to be talking about not only a top story for me and, and probably most of this audience, but really the, the top story in the world right now as it develops, which is the Iran deal. President Trump has given himself until the middle of next month, really, next month starts tomorrow, May, middle of May, to decide whether to stay in the Iran deal or not. And you're hearing a lot of debate whether he should stay, whether he shouldn't. Let's let's cut to the chase on this. And there's two major points I want to make about it today. It's going to be a packed show because obviously this deal you could talk about for many hours. But we're going to focus on two things. The first thing, unfortunately, is just the, the quick, honest truth, which is this is no deal at all. It has already failed in about as badly as it could possibly fail. It's already really not working and it has not been working for a long time and a lot of the things that were promised have not happened let's take a look at first the first thing that we're promised was that this will stop iran for a period of 10 years and freeze them where they are in place from getting a nuclear weapon and we were further promised that if they start up again after the 10-year period which would end in 2025 they would have to start from scratch now, look, this is a matter of debate throughout the world, but it is not a done deal agreed on by everyone fact that Iran actually has stopped its nuclear program. It has not stopped its ambitions. And it certainly isn't agreed upon that if they started again in five, six, seven, eight years, that they would be starting from, from square one. And of course, the, the head of the Mossad, the chief of the Mossad, said just a couple of weeks ago that he has absolutely no doubt in his mind, 100% accuracy, he believes, that Iran hasn't stopped at all in its nuclear ambitions. So at least one part of the deal is pretty much agreed on has not worked, which is just that Iran would start from square one with its nuclear ambitions. And then it's a matter of dispute whether or not Iran has actually stopped at all. Now, that is something that people are going to debate. They're going to go back and forth about. Again, only one part of it is really agreed on. But still, that's that's a major strike against this nuclear deal because so much of it was sold on this fact that Iran would have to start from square one. But let's talk now about what is really verifiable in this deal, what has happened since. Now, the deal was sold as an alternative to war. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about how the only two choices the American people were given was either support the deal or be called a warmonger. And let's take a look at what's happened. Not only is there more war, since this deal was ratified in 2015. But there's a lot more war. Now, the war that was often given as an example of the mistake that we want to avoid in the future was the Iraq War of 2003 that went all the way through 2009 from the point of view of the United States. There were about 130,000 total deaths in that war, civilian soldiers, Iraqis, Americans, you put it all together. Since the Iran deal has really been in the fast track, for the United States, for the Obama administration, when the former Obama administration. We already have in Syria more than 500,000 people dead. This is a war that has been escalated and supercharged by the fact that Iran was allowed to keep the, the fires going in this war for a long time. Russia was allowed to get involved once the United States made it very, very clear they were not going to interfere with Syria because that would insult Iran, that would anger Iran, and they didn't want anything to get in the way of the Iran deal. But that's just Syria, folks. Don't forget, Iran is the purveyor of what I call the three H's of the apocalypse, Hamas, Houthis, and Hezbollah. Hezbollah is mostly a problem in Syria and also in Lebanon, but you also have Hamas 
on the border with Israel and Gaza, which has caused many more problems, especially in recent days. This is also a result of Iran and the more money Iran has to stoke problems there. And then the Houthis are the rebel force in Yemen that the Iranians have now more, more and more brazenly supported, and the Houthis are getting more and more belligerent. They are firing missiles into Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, the country that it, they are fighting. Saudi Arabia has a hegemonic power over the Saudi Arabia, the Yemeni government, government that the Saudi Arabians support. So all that is, is absolutely verifiable. There's no denying there. And, you know, this reminds me of a mistake that American prosecutors often make when it comes to informants. That sounds like a real stretch going from the Iran deal to informants in criminal cases. But bear with me here. You know, Robert Mueller, a, a name that many of us know right now, he's in charge of the so-called Russian collusion investigation into the Trump administration. Before that, before he was the FBI uh, director, it was before he, and then before that, he was also a U.S. attorney for the Boston, New England area. And during that time, he was in charge of the Whitey Bulger case. And by that, I mean Whitey Bulger was a major Irish mobster in the Boston area for many, many years, but he was also an informant for the FBI. And for many, many years, Rob, not just Robert Mueller, but other prosecutors kept giving Whitey Bulger a pass for his crimes because they believed he was informing on even bigger fish out there. And not only just Whitey Bulger, but people who were associated with Bulger were given a pass. And people who were associated with Bulger's associates were given a pass. And of course, the irony of this all was the fact that Whitey Bulger was actually the biggest fish of them all. As they were trying to protect him to get a bigger fish, the truth was the biggest criminal was Whitey Bulger himself. And this reminds me exactly of what's been going on or what had been going on during the, the final years of the Obama administration as they continue to excuse the killings and the all kind of mayhem that the Iranians were doing via Hezbollah, via Hamas, via the Houthis, and other things that Iran was doing in the hopes of saving some kind of a deal that they said would save lives. But in the end, the real killings and the real war were escalated by many, many times in the way that they were helping the Iranians and looking the other way and doing everything they could possibly do to keep the Iranian deal alive. That's really, I think, the best way to describe the failure of this deal. It was a failure before we signed it. It's a failure now. There's really no choice for Donald Trump in the next two weeks. There's no deal for him to stay for him to decide for us to stay in. There's nothing. There's no deal happening here. We have more war. We have an Iran that is at least keeping its nuclear option open much more than they have promised a few years ago. But believe it or not, that's not what I want to spend most of my time focusing on today. Because one of the things that we forget about when we argue about foreign policy, when we argue about any political decision in an academic way on its pros and cons, we forget that nothing happens in a democracy or in a political world without a powerful amount of political persuasion of the public. Now, many of you may know the very well-reported story, one that the people involved even admitted to, about how the Obama administration felt they could really easily carry the American news media along by a string on the Iran deal story and many other stories. And presidential advisor under Obama, Ben Rhodes, told the public a year or two ago that when President Obama was president, they knew that they could tell the American news media just about anything, and they would believe it and they would follow it. Now that's very, very damning. It's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to hear, but let's do more than that because we have to understand why that was so important. It isn't just a throwaway line. It's so important on this Iran, Iran deal because 
the way President Obama and the Obama administration presented it to the American people was not in the way, for example, that President George W. Bush presented his case for the war in Iraq, starting really pretty much right after 9-11, 2001, and going through the beginning of the war in 2003. If you remember, the point of that campaign, for lack of a better word, was to try to get as much bipartisan support for the war in Iraq as possible, to bring America together for this war. And I'm a critic of the Iraq war for a lot of reasons. I think that there were a lot of better ways for America to respond to 9-11. For example, what's happening now with the United States and Saudi Arabia, the pressure America has successfully put on Saudi Arabia to start moving away from some of its terrorist activities is really what we should have been pursuing much more in 2001 than any action in Iraq. But that's another argument. That's another, that's another story. But that kind of bipartisan argument was really the crux of the Bush campaign. And the Bush administration was very, very concerned, and it was very, very important to them to get as much Democratic Party support as possible. And so they avoided the browbeating. They avoided, they avoided the shame campaign. And they tried to make it an all-inclusive, big tent policy. And whatever you think of the war in Iraq, whatever you think of the results of it, and again, I'm a pretty big critic of a lot of the results, the fact is... It was pretty successful. There was a very strong bipartisan congressional support for the Iraq war, and that has a lot to do with the way that the Bush administration presented that to the American public. But that is in sharp contrast, sharp contrast to the way that the Obama administration began, began to start selling publicly the Iran deal. Now, we need to know a few things before the, that, that campaign started. We know now, for example, that the Obama administration, even before they took office in 2009, so in the months between the election win in November of 2008 and taking the oath of office in January, Obama election officials, Obama administration officials, before they were even working officially for the government, started to contact Iranian officials. And by the way, that may be criminal collusion. Iran is, was an official and still is an official enemy of the United States, and even though that is an incoming administration, it's questionable that that was a legal contact that was made but we'll set that aside for now. We do know that from the time that President Obama was elected all the way through 2012, when we started to get some of the details of this beginning of this deal happening, that the Obama administration's really a major, major thrust of their foreign policy was to get this done, was to get this deal done. So that's what was going on behind the scenes. Finally, 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 in April of 2015, Barack Obama, starts to sell publicly and for the first time really introduces the idea of the Iran deal to the American public at large. He has a Rose Garden news conference, and I won't really call it a news conference because no questions were allowed. He just makes a Rose Garden statement in the middle of the day, carried by all the major networks, not just the cable TV networks, but the broadcast networks. And here's how he starts to sell that deal. And it's very, very important for us to listen to not only the words that he says, but how he says them. So let's listen to the first real definitive comment that President Obama starts to make about the Iran deal. That's the, our first soundbite. We're going to look at a lot of them today, so that's our first soundbite. Let's listen to that one. So when you hear the inevitable critics of the deal sound off, ask them a simple question. Do you really think that this verifiable deal, if fully implemented, backed by the world's major powers, is a worse option than the risk of another war in the Middle East? So right away we're given by President Obama the very, very stark choice of either support this deal or you're looking for more war in the Middle East. And it isn't just his words, which are really, I think, very stark and really quite scolding in a way. 
but it's his tone. And his scolding tone at the beginning of this announcement was there right away. Now contrast that not only to President Bush, but also President Bill Clinton. One of the really great talents President Clinton had was no matter what was going on, he made it sound like everyone was the winner. Came out with a big smile. He did very little browbeating in his presidency, which is one of the reasons why he had a more successful presidency than Barack Obama on pretty much every level. But Barack Obama, very often when he gave speeches, for all the talk about President Trump's bullying and President Trump's browbeating, it's really Barack Obama who was really quite very good at it and did it almost all the time. And he does it very, very quickly in this speech. And of course, this sets the, the tone for the entire, the entire message that pre President Obama is trying to bring. He immediately starts talking about critics, immediately starts going after people. Again, this isn't a news conference for real. He's not really getting any questions from anyone. So that's the first aspect of this. It's, it's a browbeating type of message. It's a you're for war if you're not from ideal type of message. And then there's another little bit of what I would call peer pressure that he throws in. Let's listen to the second soundbite where he throws in the peer pressure aspect of this. And our concerns will remain with respect to Iranian behavior so long as Iran continues its sponsorship of terrorism, its support for proxies who destabilize the Middle East, its threats against America's friends and allies, like Israel. So make no mistake, we will remain vigilant in countering those actions and standing with our allies. So now it's all about, hey, we have to do this or our allies are going to get us real, a big problem. It's almost, I mean, it is almost exactly like what you heard in fourth grade. Hey, everybody else is doing it. We have to do this. So again, not a... America has to take this leadership position. This is for good for the American people. It, it kind of does start with America takes a leadership position, but America needs to take a leadership position for other countries, not for our own people, not for our own interests. It's not that kind of a message. It's more of a message like a peer pressure type message, which was again something that was repeated over and over again during that spring and summer of 2015 when they were selling this deal. But now we get to a little bit of the implicit and explicit nefariousness of the Iran deal pitch from the Obama administration. Of course, that starts when he starts to mention Israel. Let's listen to that. That's the third soundbite, again, from this April message at the Rose Garden. It's no secret that the Israeli prime minister and I don't agree about whether the United States should move forward with a peaceful resolution to the Iranian issue. If, in fact, Prime Minister Netanyahu is looking for the most effective way to ensure Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon, this is the best option. And I believe our nuclear experts can confirm that. More importantly, I will be speaking with the Prime Minister today to make clear that there will be no daylight, there is no daylight, when it comes to our support for Israel's security and our concerns about Iran's destabilizing policies and threats towards Israel. Now, Israel starts getting inserted into this discussion very quickly. Now, there are some good reasons for that. Already at that point in April, Prime Minister Netanyahu had started to talk about for weeks and months that this deal that the Americans were pursuing was not a good idea and there were problems with it. So, of course, it doesn't come totally out of left field that President Obama would mention Israel because we knew that Israel has, has concerns and Israel is still this enjoys pretty widespread support in the United States, or I should say aggregate support. It's getting weaker and weaker 
in the left among Democratic voters, but it's stronger overall because the Republican Party and conservative voters and Christian voters have really embraced Israel more and more every couple of years. So he starts to bring in Israel there, but then there's that little tinge of implicit hinting there that, you know, Israel is a factor here. And remember that there were people on the right and the left, unfortunately, during the Iraq war, who absolutely believed the nonsense, the total narishkai, that Israel had somehow convinced the United States to go to war against Iraq to save themselves. Now, it just it was an incredibly anti-Semitic accusation, but it also made very little sense because really, in, in total, the Iraq war didn't do Israel very many favors. In fact, it made Iran so much more strong, so much stronger, that it threatened Israel even more. But that's what we had to, that's what we heard from, from President Obama. And finally, he again, again talks about how this is going to make America look bad if we don't make this deal. That's the final soundbite from his April speech. Let's listen to that. For this is not simply a deal between my administration and Iran. This is a deal between Iran, the United States of America, and the major powers in the world, including some of our closest allies. If Congress kills this deal, not based on expert analysis and without offering any reasonable alternative, then it's the United States that will be blamed for the failure of diplomacy. So you see, that's President Obama saying, see, we're going to look bad. Again, it's more of the same uh, from the soundbite before the last one about how the rest of the world will look at us badly. I'm not sure why that's important. The way the United States looks to other countries that make all kinds of incredible deals with terrorists and bad acting countries all the time. This is, again, it's, it's a shaming, shaming operation. And that's my point here. Whether you believe the Iran deal is a good deal or not, I don't know how you can possibly think it's a good deal, but if you do, that's fine. But the point is, that's not the argument here. The argument here that President Obama's making is that we're going to look bad. We're going we're gonna to be ostracized by folks in the, in, in, the, in the world. I don't know how. Will Europe and South America start to economically sanction us if we don't make a deal with Iran? It was, a very, it was kind of a ludicrous type of argument, but the kind of thing that elitists in this country often talk about all the time, about how they're embarrassed about the way Europeans talk about us or foreign countries talk about us. That's not the job of the president of the United States. The president of the United States is not the PR campaign for the United States for European countries that have, believe me, a much worse track record. But again, this was President Obama's role in selling the Iran deal. And I mentioned this importantly, this is very important because even though Barack Obama isn't president anymore, the, it's very, very important for us to dismantle the campaign, the persuasion campaign that he put on for the Iran deal. And make no mistake, no matter what you feel about Barack Obama, and I was not a supporter of his, but only a fool would deny his persuasive powers. He had strong persuasive powers. Most of it came before he even said a word out of his mouth, because I think when he did talk, he was, again, too much more of a, of a browbeater, too tough on, on the audience. But there was a tremendous amount of the audience that liked that about him. He had a look and a way about him that was very, very persuasive, and only a fool would deny that. And that's why it's very, very important that you remember that his role in bullying America and browbeating America into making this deal has to be looked at, even though he's not president anymore, because if we're going to get out of this deal, we have to know how we got into it. Now, again, you're listening to Novak now on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I've spent the first part of the show talking about how the Iran deal really already is a major failure. There really isn't any decision for President Trump to make in the next couple of weeks. 
But there is a, a very important job we have to do to understand how we got into this ruinous deal in the first place, because we won't be able to get out of it until we can really, really tell the American people how we got into it in the first place. So again, that was Barack Obama's role in it. And as persuasive as he is, and as persuasive as any politician can possibly be, you can't get anywhere with the American people in a persuasion game without help, either willing or unwilling help from the American news media. And that's what we're going to look at now in the second half of Novak now. The way that the American news media really willingly, and I think in a very cowardly way, followed this campaign, this persuasion campaign, this bullying campaign from President Obama. Because three months after his Rose Garden announcement, three months after he first presents the Iraq deal to the American public, comes the announcement in July that it's a done deal. And this time it really was a news conference. This time it was inside the White House, and this time he did take questions. And I'm going to talk, and, and we're going to look at the kind of questions that he was asked and what they mean. So let's roll the first soundbite. The first question came from a man named Andrew Beatty. He's a, an Irish-born uh, reporter, and he was asking a question for, for AFP, which is like a, a, a news wire service. I want you to listen to these questions very, very carefully and the way some of them are answered. Let's listen to that first soundbite from that second news conference. Andrew Beatty, AFP. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Um, yesterday, you said the deal offered uh, a chance at a new direction in relations with Iran. Um, what steps will you take to enable a more moderate Iran? And does this deal allow you to more forcefully counter Iran's destabilizing actions in the region, uh, quite aside from the nuclear question? Thank you. Now, I know that may sound a little bit like a challenging question at first glance or the first time you hear it. But really, it's a tremendous setup question for President Obama. It basically says, hey, there are some other things about this deal that we would like to see resolved. What are you going to do about them? It's almost like they tell a prosecuting attorney or, or any attorney when they're cross-examining a witness, never ask a how or a why question. Because when you ask a how or a why question, you've really opened up the witness to give a really nice long story. You want to keep them to yes or no answers. This is a classic how and why question. You know. President Obama, how are you going to do it? And it really sets him up like a fastball right over the plate that the, uh, the batter is waiting for. And that's exactly what President Obama did after that question. But Andrew Beatty wasn't the only one. The next questioner was Jonathan Carl from ABC News. Let's listen to his question. John Carl. Mr. President, does it give you any pause to see this deal praised by Syrian dictator Assad as a great victory for Iran, or praised by those in Tehran who still shout death to America, and yet our closest ally in the Middle East calls it a mistake of historic proportions? And here in Congress, it looks like a large majority will vote to reject this deal. I know you can veto that rejection, but do you have any concerns about seeing a majority of the people's representatives in Congress saying that this is a bad deal? And that's another question that may sound like it's a challenging question. But again, it gives President Obama a tremendous opportunity to talk about how, well, I don't care what Assad says. I don't care what the Iranian says. It really gives him a chance to sound like a tough guy, frankly, the way that President Trump likes to sound very often. So this, again, not a challenging question. These were two questions that I have no idea whether they were deliberately set up for this administration, but they were perfect fastballs right over the plate for President Obama to knock out of the park. And he easily did that. There is more. Now let's listen to Carol Lee, who was at the Wall Street Journal at the time. Carol Lee. Thank 
you, Mr. President. I want to ask you about the arms and ballistic missile embargo. Why did you decide, agree to lift those, even with the five and eight year durations? Right. It's obviously emerging as a sticking point on the Hill. And are you concerned that arms to Iran will go to Hezbollah or Hamas? And is there anything that you or a future president can do to stop that? And if you don't mind, um, I, mean, I wanted to see if you could step back a little bit. And when you look at this Iran deal and all the other issues and unrest that's happening in the Middle East, what kind of Middle East do you want to leave when you leave the White House in a year and a half? Again, a question that started out pretty good. What about those ballistic missiles? What about the other weapons that you're going to give Iran in this? It sounded like it was going in a great direction and then completely, completely ruined by the end of the question, which is, and by the way, sir, what kind of Middle East do you want to see in the future? I mean, it was almost like that part of the question was set to some nice, peaceful music. Of course, President Obama is going to seize on the second part of that question. He's going to make a big deal about my vision is for peace. Other people, I don't know, I guess they want to kill people. That was just an incredibly irresponsible question to ask. I'm not really interested in what the president's dreams are for the future. We're asking about this deal right now. Obviously, we don't accuse President Obama of wanting everyone to die in the Middle East, although he seemed to accuse others of that. All right, you had another similar setup question from Michael Crowley. He's the next questioner. Let's listen to his question. Michael Crowley. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, you alluded earlier to uh, Iran's role in Syria, just to focus on that for a moment. Yeah. Uh, many analysts and some former members of your administration believe that the kind of negotiated political settlement that you say is necessary in Syria will require working directly with Iran and giving Iran an important role. Do you agree, and is that a dialogue you'll be actively seeking? And what about the fight against ISIS? What would it take for there to be explicit cooperation between the U.S. and Iran? Now, that's a complete setup question. Hey, Mr. President, don't, don't we need to talk to Iran to get, to get peace in all these other areas? I mean, members of the U.N. administration say that. Don't you think we should do that? And uh, don't we need to make better deals and have better peace? I mean, look, <laughs> what's he going to say? No. Obviously, that's something he agrees to. Obviously, this is a reporter advancing the president's agenda. You know, it's one thing to be friendly to the president. It's another to start carrying his water. And there is no president in American history who's had his water carried for him more than Barack Obama by the American news media. And the Iran deal is the best example. But not every reporter was in on the memo that day. There was a challenging question. And it's very, very important to listen to not only the challenging question, but the way that President Obama initially responded to it. Let's listen to that last soundbite from the July news conference announcing the Iran deal. Major Garrett. Thank you, Mr. President. As you well know, there are four Americans in Iran, three held on trumped-up charges, according to your administration, one whereabouts unknown. Can you tell the country, sir, why you are content with all the fanfare around this deal to leave the conscience of this nation and the strength of this nation unaccounted for in relation to these four Americans? And last week, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said under no circumstances should there be any relief for Iran in terms of ballistic missiles or conventional weapons. It is perceived that that was a last-minute capitulation in these negotiations. Many in the Pentagon feel you've left the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff hung out to dry. Could you comment? I've got to give you credit, Major, for how you craft those, uh, those questions. For the, the notion that I'm content as I celebrate with American citizens languishing in Iranian jails? Major, that, that's nonsense. 
that was the only really challenging question of that news conference. And of course, you got to give Major Garrett credit, but I also give President Obama credit because, again, in his persuasive debate tactics that he uses, he doesn't say, oh, I, I wasn't content. He changes it. Major Garrett said content. He did use that word. But then President Obama addressed that question as if he had said he was celebrating. No, Major Garrett didn't say he was celebrating. But of course, that's the issue that President Obama wants to debate. He wants to debate kind of a red herring type de depiction of that question. Look, folks, we're probably going to see some kind of end to the Iran deal or some major change from President Trump. We have to understand how we got into it in the first place. We were bullied into it by a browbeating, scolding type president that a lot of the public enjoyed hearing from. There were a lot of people who enjoyed that aspect of Obama's presidency, but it led us down a lot of bad roads. And I think the Iran deal was just about the worst. You've been listening to Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at JakeJakeNY or on Facebook. I'll speak to you next week.